Welcome to Tech Breakfast, today's top headlines served hot by your host Aaron Bewley and Tyler Gates. So grab your coffee and let's get into it. Muscle up, Buttercup. It's Friday, June 26th, and we're 48% of the way through the year. Fun fact coming at you, it's World Refrigeration Day. Follow me here. It was created to raise awareness about the importance of refrigeration technologies in everyday life. What? Why was this day chosen, you asked? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you asked that question. It was the birth date of Lord Kelvin. He was born in 1824. If you have no idea who Lord Kelvin is, though, he's best known for the fact that absolute temperatures are stated in units of Kelvin in his honor. That's right. Yeah. He wrote Kelvin, baby. Absolute zero. He also did important work in the formulation of the first and second laws of thermodynamics. You may have known that. But what I learned today is that there is a zeroth law of thermodynamics. I always thought there was the first, second, and third. Did you know there was zeroth, Tyler? I, you know, I guarantee you that I was taught that at some point, but I had completely forgotten until you brought it up. And then I looked it up, and it's actually pretty straightforward, but it ends up being really critical mathematically. So I, I get why it exists, and it's, uh, I, I'm, I, I'd actually love to know the history of why it was labeled the zeroth. My guess is that it it's arguably more fundamental, but yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about it that a way. physics joke too. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, but it forms the basis for the definition of temperature. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is. Cause I'm assuming none of y'all know what the zero with law of thermodynamics is. If you did, this is our daily shout out to you to say, you come get. join us on the show and talk to us. Yeah. Uh, and you get extra points. <laughs> But if two systems are each in thermal equilibrium with a third system, they are in thermal equilibrium with each other. You may say, duh, but that just means if A equals B and B equals C, uh, then A equals C. Got it. Yeah, kind of. But if I remember correctly, it has a lot to do with how that works itself out mathematically and whether or not systems would um, transfer heat to each other, which changes the math if the answer is yes, right? So heat is, it's there's only one heat. And something is hotter or colder depending on heat moving, right? Um, so it's important to be able to state that transitive equivalency in the math. And I do not remember any of those calculations. So hmm. my knowledge has full stopped right there. Did you say there's only one heat? Yeah, that's that's kind of the way that thermodynamics is stated, right? The heat heat is always going to move from where it is more to where it is less. We feel hot and cold, but heat is the the thing. It, that's the easiest way to think about it. At least that's how I always thought about it. I gotcha. So I think the most interesting bit of news that I ran into, I don't know, in the last couple of days, especially because of my love of large-scale things, was apparently we have recently reached... 20% mapping of the Earth's seafloor. Let that sink in for a second. Doesn't seem very much like oh, <laughs> my English was bad there. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a lot. That's exactly how long what I've been sailing the oceans. And, and I think, like, I mentioned this on the show some, some number of days ago, probably more than one time, because I think about it more often than people probably should. But we know so little about the oceans considering how close we are to them, because they're extremely difficult to, well, research, right? We talked about, in a lot of ways, yeah. it's easier to get people into space. Um, yeah, it's, it's easier to explore to the moon. With, with the ocean. So that's just a, a really interesting data point. You know, 
we only recently got to, and it's actually, it's not, it's not actually 20%. It was 19% um, of the ocean floor is now uh, officially mapped. And there's a project that's been pursuing it um, called, let me look at this name again. Um, it's called the Nippon Foundation GEBCO Seabed 2030 Project, which uh, is obviously, I think, in the name, designed to map the entire seabed by 2030, which is cool. We've got a target. Um, another cool little snippet there was that in 2017, when the project was launched, only 6% of the global ocean bottom had been surveyed. Okay. <laughs> We're making good progress, but it is insane how little we mapped it. I'm imagining my grandkids telling their kids, back in my day before the, <laughs> before the, before the ocean floor was mapped. <laughs> like, I don't know. Because oh, for me, it's like back in my day before the internet. Before the internet, exactly. What's, what was life before the ocean floor being mapped like, Dad? What was it like when the dinosaurs died? Well, that's the thing. So <laughs> when you go and you watch the Meg... It makes it that much more believable. It's like, yeah, we really don't know if they have those like thermal layers down there that's trapping these prehistoric massive sharks. Cool. It could be, be real. I haven't watched the Meg yet. I'll have to do that. I've watched it twice. <laughs> There's 14.5 million square meters of new bathymetric. So depth, yeah. Uh, interesting. I did not know that term. Bathy or, or yeah, I don't know how else you'd say that. B-A-T-H-Y metric, bathymetric. Data was included in the Jebco grid in 2019, <laughs> equivalent to almost twice the land, the mat, or the surface of Australia. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ocean is huge, man. When I no flew kidding. to Australia, I can remember like I woke up at one point. I'm over the Pacific, and you could not see land. No, and I took no, a photo no. of the the globe, like, and then I got home and I grabbed the globe that we have uh, for the kids. Well, for for all of us, but sure. we we reference it a lot. And yeah, you can turn if you look like right in the middle of the Pacific, you can turn it to where so far from everything. all you see is ocean. <laughs> it's weird. I know it's it's insane. It's insane how vast the world's oceans are. Um, I'm yeah. I'm always just floored by the fact that we don't know what the floor looks like too. Yeah. Or just go to like uh, Google Maps and zoom out to where you get yeah. the spherical shape because the world is not flat. <laughs> <laughs> so true. All right. I, was, I, uh, I loved Google Earth for that. Um, I also have a globe, though. It is, there's something very fun about having a, a proper three-dimensional you know, globe sitting there that you can spin around that has the you know, sort of the map of the world. And the kids really yeah. enjoy that. And it's fun to point it out and find what? home compared to places that are talked about in books and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And if you have a flat map, then you have all those, those, uh, those, um, projection issues. Yes. The projection issues. That's the word yeah. I was thinking of. Thank you. What is it? Uh, I, there are a couple of fun projection, I don't know, comics discussions. I remember West wing got into the, I forget the Mercator projection. Is that the normal one? Or I say the yeah. normal, the most commonly used one. Anyways, there was a, an episode of West wing where somebody came in and was arguing that they needed to change the standard to, I forget the name of it, but it was basically just the same thing upside down. So very similar to what you've got just flipped on its head, which of course yeah. skews the uh, other parts, you know, differently or any, anyways, it was a fun episode. And then there's, as always, an XKCD comic about projections, and it has some really interesting and somewhat absurd ones that sort of, like, one's a butterfly projection, and it's it's kind of, if you took a globe, and then you cut 
sort of like a, a weird soccer ball shape into it and laid it flat, then it would have these weird lobes that don't actually touch each other. So you don't have to stretch anything. And it, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Highly recommend looking that up. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I saw this, uh, you dropped it in here as well. Um, but Google is saying they're going to start auto deleting your records by default. Right? Yeah. So if you, if you have Google store your location data historically, it would just kind of keep it forever. Now it's going to go and change everybody automatically to uh, 18 months. You can go in there and change it as you want or say, don't track or whatever. Yeah, uh, that was cool. That, that is kind of cool. And, and I certainly like that it's not an opt-in. Um, it's something that they're enabling by default. So the mm-hmm. default setting is to do that. But it, it's also a curious change too, because I wonder how much of that was privacy concerns and then how much... I wonder what the burden on companies like Google are that have stuff like location data as far back as forever from a legal yeah. perspective, right? That's where my they, head went to. Yeah, so so they there's a discovery problem with having everyone's location data forever, I would think. I, I would think that they would, and maybe there's a statute of limitations and nationally or globally, I guess it depends on your jurisdiction, where where it just wouldn't matter and they would they wouldn't have any reason to you know respond to it but i I certainly don't know the law well enough but i I can imagine that they are just hammered with uh requests for that data legal requests which puts it on hold too which means they have to store it forever and i I know google's not shy about storing data don't get me wrong there but i I can't imagine that if it's not particularly useful for them anymore that yeah. they want any kind of administrative burden associated with it. So I, I can imagine that's a little good for them too. That's what I think it is right there. They, they probably determined the time horizon of effectiveness uh, in tracking. And they just said, yeah, pretty much anything after 18 months, like we have everything. Doesn't help us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, too far back. <laughs> and you know what else uh, highlighted that exact concept to me is that in the article, it talks about what data is auto deleted when, right? And so what like websites and the pages you visited and location data, for instance, is 18 months. That's the default when they're going to auto delete that data. And, and, but then YouTube histories, including what clips you watch and how long you watch them, they're not deleted for 36 months, which tells me that hmm. there's a reason or, or yeah. it tells me that they're getting value out of one of those more than the other going further. Back. That's a good call out. I didn't catch that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, All right. Uh, let's see. There were some funny tweets around this next bit of news that you dropped in here. So Amazon bought self-driving startup Zooks for $1.2 billion. And, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. The funny ones were one of the later things that we'll get to. But uh, there were some interesting call outs. So um, at MIMS, M-I-M-S, Christopher Mims, he said, as someone who spent some time with the folks at Zooks and fancies himself an attentive Amazon watcher, I doubt this is about electric cars. It may, however, be about other forms of autonomy, delivery in warehouse automation, which Amazon has very yeah. public interest in. Of course. And then uh, at Ryan Duffy also said, all I can think about here is the bidirectional autonomous car Zooks is developing, which I was like, what? Wait, what? Bidirectional? Uh, okay. I mean, I guess cars have reverse, but I guess it can just like flip around, just kind of like a like a, a train going back and forth, uh, ah, one yeah. of the electric trains or whatever. The traditional looking how- forward because of our our two uh, two forward looking cameras as humans. That's actually he- an interesting design comment. 
Yeah, but he's saying how and uh, developing how that tech would be useful in warehouse logistics contexts rather than on public roads. So I find it. I mean, obviously, about. those those people probably know a lot more about Amazon and what they would be doing from a self driving startup perspective. Why that acquisition would happen? Um, maybe they even have some insider uh, knowledge of why they acquired Zook specifically or, or why they were looking at it. But it's also hard to believe that Amazon would buy any, I assume, technically competent, so somewhat successful uh, self-driving vehicle startup and not at least consider the technology for distribution as well, right? Yeah. And, and maybe maybe I'm way off That's there. Their play. Maybe the technology that Zooks has is totally inappropriate for like a tractor trailer, but I, I just find it hard to believe that they wouldn't at least dig yeah, well, and a $1.2 billion expenditure is kind of like a side bet. You know, we, we kind of <laughs> talk about that all the time. Amazon, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, I, well, that's what I'm saying, yeah, though, no, right? Like, there was, a, there was a company that, uh, so I think when Apple acquired, what, Next VR, and they only paid $200 million for oh, yeah, it. Yeah, I know. It's nothing, um, nothing for yeah. that. Yeah. For, for the cash flow anyway. Did you see when you were looking at this, because I, I didn't actually get the chance to read even the article that I linked for that um, that headline, you know, the purchase of Zooks. Uh, but did, did you see, when was Zooks founded? Mm. Did you catch that? I did not catch that. I'm curious, and maybe it's in the article, maybe it's not, maybe it's something I can look up later uh, and apologies to anyone listening because I didn't get a chance to do it today. But uh, one, one thought that I had as soon as I saw that was... Um, I think a lot of people, especially sort of the curious tech-minded folks, will, will have those moments where somebody announces a project they started working on and be like, ah, I had that idea and I didn't pursue it, that kind of stuff, right? Like we all have we all have some of that, like inventor's guilt. I don't even know what you call it. But my first thought when I saw that was, I've never heard of Zooks. They're obviously way behind, and I'm putting big air quotes on that because it sounds like they have some really interesting technology and clearly valuable technology, but they're way behind like a Tesla. And so you think, well, I could never inject myself into the industry, into an industry that's budding that well and really bring something uh, that unique to the table or the barriers of entry. I, I don't know. There's a lot of data that would go into this sort of assessment, right? But but they just got purchased for $1.2 billion. So yeah. I, I want to know where in the timeline of things, like what made them start and how they got so, I guess to put it bluntly, it's obvious that self-driving vehicles, and maybe it is a little late now to just be getting into it, but it, it's still very early. Like the giants in the industry that see and know the value associated with inefficiencies or, or risk associated with human driving, that sort of stuff. They're clearly posturing and they're doing that through acquisition in a lot of cases. So I don't know. It was neat. That's where my brain went. Yeah. Well, uh, so while you were doing that, I pulled up the answer to your question. Yay, so, perfect. so yeah, Zooks was founded uh, in July of 2014. Uh, founded yeah, by... So, I mean, that's nothing. That's They've been around for so such a short period of time. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is one of the um, founders is a son of uh, an Apple chairman hmm. and uh, he was developing self-driving was technology. Barriers. <laughs> yeah. Developing self-driving technology at Stanford. Cool. Uh, Very cool. But so, yeah, I, I mean, just like you, I had never heard of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 2018 is when they look like they started to pop. So according to Bloomberg, they had raised 800 million in VC funding at a valuation of 3.2 billion. 
Um, that was in July of 2018. So yeah, just four years after getting off the ground. And then in March of 2019, so a little bit over a year ago, Tesla filed a lawsuit against them. Mm. Uh, and now several or in several now former Tesla employees, um, alleging the theft of Tesla property information, trade secrets related to warehousing, shipping and logistics, et cetera. Um, Interesting. So sorry, those, those former Tesla employees left Tesla for employment at Zooks. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's, yeah. there's tons of that. Right. But obviously yeah. they had some, some secret sauce there cause they, they got a lot of people's attention. If Tesla suing them and, and Amazon is buying them, they're doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's move to, um, where the jokes were earlier. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. These, these aren't my jokes. Don't come, don't come at me, Microsoft. Okay. Okay. These are just, these are the internet jokes. Uh, but it said Microsoft um, says it will permanently close all Microsoft store retail locations and focus on its online store instead. Now, interestingly, I saw some headlines say that they will permanently close all, and then some headlines said permanently close most. So you may still see a few out there. They got a um, flagship or two. Yeah, maybe. That doesn't surprise uh, me. But uh, on Twitter, so at Yoda said, can't blame the pandemic. The only folks I saw in those stores were employees, which... <laughs> Last time I did see one of those stores, it was in, uh, was it the North Park Mall in Dallas? There's an Apple store like uh, adjacent right across the way. Okay, yeah. And there was like 500 people in there and literally, and I have five (laughs) photos of this or I took video. I stood in front of the Microsoft store and it's their colorful shirts. And then you flip around because there's nobody, there like there really wasn't anybody. I think there was like a 13 year old kid playing Xbox right up front. Brutal. And then, yeah. So, and then at Quatoria said so i guess now we can finally stop pretending like these ever existed for any reason other than apple had them too so <laughs> i don't know i don't know i mean uh, i know microsoft sells a lot of peripheral items and all that kind yeah. of stuff but well uh, and shoot i mean they actually have some really nice devices too i'm i'm a fan of the yeah. surface line i know a lot of people that are a fan of the surface line and if you're if you're a windows user those are actually pretty neat pretty neat and pretty functional devices battery life aside um, but then what the one that caught my attention, I think the only time, because I did one time walk into a Microsoft store, um, was to take a look at the, what do they call it? Like the Microsoft Studio, like the desk sized. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was awesome. Tablet's the wrong word, but that, that thing is awesome. Like if money were no object, I feel like I'd have one of those just to draw bad lines yeah. occasionally. I just, and maybe we're digging at something here where there's a difference between the PC master race people and the Apple fanboys and just the types of like the different ways they shop. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I think also the number of, I I think there's a scope and scale of their actual end user base difference there too. Mm -hmm. If you're an Apple fanboy, then you buy Apple devices from Apple cell phones macbooks apple you know tv devices and you're buying them from apple if you are a pc user you're not necessarily buying your pc experience from microsoft so you just lost a huge chunk of people that buy their stuff from dell and they're not going to go into a microsoft store to look at microsoft devices when they buy laptops from dell and so and, and then even more so because they don't sell phones anymore because they were yeah. not successful at all in that space think about the millions of that's got to be probably it, walking there to see the latest iphone yeah those two things combined i think you're right I think they, you're they, they never had the same 
I don't want to say same addressable market. I mean, technically, when they were trying to sell phones, they absolutely had the same addressable market. They just couldn't get it, right? Their capitalization was high slow. But their capitalization of device users is way, 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 way below Apple's. Yeah. So I'm not surprised. I think you cracked the nut. That's it. Moving on, because we, we figured that one out. All right. What else? What, what else you got? Um, let's see what I see. Oh, uh, I saw, saw an article that said uh, Google's latest version of AR Core adds 3D sensing to to Android devices. And that was neat because I've heard of AR Core before. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it's, it is it is a, what a technology, I guess, that's designed to at least in part help map environments. So you can get yeah. three-dimensional now maps. That was the big update is that they, they added depth. And what, what I thought was neat was AR Core is capable of running on really low-end Google devices too. So think like $100 phones um, because they're coming out of the box with at least two cameras. So there's there's enough data to actually get distance calculations done. And it was designed to run on those. So I think I think AR Core, go, go, AR Core goes well beyond that. I think it's there's also a, a development kit for it for augmented reality in general. But I thought that was really neat, and I wonder what it's going to lead to. It reminds me of where. Yeah, Google I can tell going. you where it's going to go to. Right. Tell me. So it, well, so in the kind of top of the article there, it talks about object occlusion. So this is mixed reality. Mm-hmm. This is where you can have things that appear on your oh, phone yeah. that interact with the physical world. No, right? for so sure. You, I, I guess yeah. I guess what I was saying. So so augmented reality core, AR core, that that was the design. I'm talking specifically about the three-dimensional like mapping. And and what I was getting at, it I, you should probably talk about it just so that everybody that's listening kind of knows a little bit more about it. That was that was a good call. But um I'm thinking like Google Maps style. If you give everyone a device that helps to make better maps of the world, then oh, really yeah. cool stuff can come out of it, right? Yeah, and you so, can go to Google Maps and it'll have mapped the inside of your house as well. Yeah, which is which is neat, <laughs> right? You want to walk through my house? Yeah, go to Google Maps. <laughs> Didn't they start to do that? That just reminded me of something that they did briefly, but I'd never heard much about it, which was like the interior maps, like the... Mall of America, I think, had a Google yeah. Maps interior. Did, did that effort just fizzle out? I think so. I haven't seen, but they they did that with like stadiums, yeah, um, and stuff like that. Yeah, where you could go in and, and look around. Um, I guess because you don't have like a dashboard uh, to mount your phone while you're walking around a mall, that would be kind of weird. I don't know. I remember <laughs> that being a thing. I'll I'll yeah. be it briefly. Yeah, no, but I see what you're going for too, because there's an interesting thing there too. Um, and sorry, I wasn't tracking you on that right out of the gate, but if you are in the middle of um, New York City, right, and you can't connect to enough satellites, it not it, your phone cannot tell which direction you're walking or looking mm-hmm. or going, and you just kind of have to kind of have to guess after walking a full block or something. You'll know, start to figure it out. But instead, you can switch to the the pan view. And you can let your phone see the buildings around and then it knows, okay, I know exactly which way you're facing. You need to walk this way. Yeah. I don't know if y'all have used that, but that exists currently, but it just kind of reminded me of that. So maybe that that stuff gets better. Yeah. Yeah. If you're where you cannot, yeah. If you can't get a satellite connection, then yeah, Yeah, that's cool for GPS. Now I, I love the idea of that kind of stuff. I remember when I was living in Italy, just going to all of the ruins and some of the really just beautiful 
old sites, right? Um, I thought it would be really cool not to, I don't know, mess the experience up by having a device. I think it would be, you know, one day I'd just go see it and then the next day it'd be neat to go back. But I could, I could totally imagine an immersive experience in like the Roman gardens. Uh, yeah. It, where where you get to put it on and you can kind of see and feel what it used to be like, um, it, even if it's just an artist yeah. rendering. But to do that with a mixed reality or an augmented reality device, it actually, I think, be really, really cool. That's a neat idea. That is awesome. I'm yeah, sure we'll do walk- that stuff in VR too, actually. Yeah. But that's not, I don't know. But, it's but a that different. mixed reality aspect is, is so that's cool, so right? Cool. Because then you could walk through some you know ancient yeah. ruin as you as you come around a corner you can see these people sitting here working on something right doing sure. leather working or uh you know masonry or something like that right and then as you move to another room they move out of the way or uh, yeah. it's kind of cool it's no i think idea. it'll be tons of fun it'll be it'll be neat i think in the education space too of course what's unfortunate there is that you'll have to find lots of other ways to make money off of the tech before it creeps into those spaces i think but yeah, I think there's a lot of limitless potential there, or certainly maybe limitless is a bit much, but there's a ton of potential for what we can do and see and have fun with and learn from AR, VR, XR, right? Yeah. Yeah. What else you got? I saw, it's interesting because I've had this one sitting um, in the show notes for a little while. Uh, Amazon announced earlier this week that it it mitigated the largest DDoS attack ever recorded to date, right? Um, with a peak traffic volume of 2.3 terabits per second. Um, and the largest recorded prior to that was only 1.7. But no joke, today, uh, they added a second largest DDoS attack that was announced from, um, who had that one? Akami? Am I saying that right? I was, okay. I, was it uh, a, I don't know. Akami? Or is it Akami? Anyways, somebody can fix me on that one. Um, apparently, they repelled the DDoS that generated 809 million packets per second, um, which is a 35% increase over the high watermark previously of only 600 uh, million packets per second. And both of those were announced this week. I think they happened uh, further back in the past. They tend to document them. But those are just out of this world massive yeah. DDoSs. And two things I thought were crazy about that. One, holy cow, scope. And, and we clearly haven't seen the end of you know, sort of device zombification and amplification of those kinds of attacks. Um, But two, both of these were successfully mitigated attacks, which is also really impressive. And so I guess Amazon used what they they call AWS Shield, which is a DDoS mitigation service. And then uh, Akami used Prolexic, which is, I, I don't, yeah, it's their service as well. But that, that is really impressive to me, right? If you think about what a distributed denial of service attack is meant to do, which is just overload your ability to process the incoming packets, the, the fact that they can just fend off something that's 35% bigger than we've ever seen is pretty pretty cool. Yeah, that and then I think about Disney launching Disney Plus and then it failing in the first 48 hours because it couldn't scale. <laughs> I'm like, come on, you know that people are going to watch this. You know, it's like, didn't they launch it like at the beginning of coronavirus? Like everyone is in their oh, house. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it Let's was prepare real for this. close to that too. And the level of scale you were talking about too, reminded me of something I was reading earlier today. Uh, I was reading this um, new, newly published article today by Columbia University uh, around personal information and consumer facial image recognition and predictability and all that kind of stuff. 
but there was a fact in there that said, um, this was back, this was as of 2011. Okay. So this was nine years ago. Think about everything that's happened. Like the iPhone almost didn't exist then. Uh, by then over 30 million surveillance cameras were deployed in the U S and they determined that they're shooting 4 billion hours every week, which is 456 years worth of video every week. This was nine years ago. Oh my God. Right. So we, we probably at this point have like a few millennia of video that's being recorded every week. I, I pity the <laughs> you know what I mean? future alien race that finds that and thinks there's going to be good stuff in it. No, I'm kidding. Millennia. <laughs> Millennia. That is, that is insane. A video. That is, that is absolutely insane. I, what, are, what are we at now? Because I remember what five years ago we were talking about the exa flood of data. And I feel like we yeah. have to have trounced that by now. It seemed like a big number then and half a decade later, it really just doesn't anymore. Oh, for sure. I mean, I can remember when we, it was like, what, 2015, 2016, we were looking at this stuff, like the creation of data. Yeah. Um, and, and Michael Dell has talked about how this up, like this, you know, 2020 to 2030 is the data era, right? Mm -hmm. But even like five years ago, they were saying that I guess like 98% of data that has ever been created has been created in the last two years. Wow. You know, it's just the, the level of, of scale. I feel like that's wild. That's one of those. That's another one of those scale. Um, I don't know. Curiosities, right? Is looking at the the human timeline of so many things, uh, mapping the Earth's floor, space exploration. You know, these are these are all things that we've talked about and we've kind of touched on it. But if you look at the timeline of human existence versus Earth versus you know, like all the way back, the the piece of that timeline that are attributable to like every known human experience is so 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 tiny and then if you zoom in on the human experience the couple thousand years right almost everything you think of as modern technology happened in the last you know like what three generations yeah right it's insane how fast yes. things are changing and growing it's the hockey stick is extraordinary and it yeah. touches every aspect of our life it's pretty, pretty right. cool time it's time to get lasers on the far side of the moon That's right what i'm saying okay let's make it happen we have this we like it, right? shield ball thing that just circles around us let's put lasers on it shield ball i anyway. like it which um, reminds me too another crazy fact i don't think i talked about on here ever but i just discovered this the other day not discovered but i learned uh venus i was telling my kids this um venus takes longer to make one revolution around the sun. So that's one year than it does to make one full rotation. So it's year is longer than it's day. Uh, I, I've had forgotten that fun fact too. I've seen, you should look these up. Um, maybe I'll find one and, and we can put it in the show notes, but have you ever seen the, the visualizations of planetary rotation? So yes. think like vertical bars uh, spinning at a, it's not a normalized rate. So earth is kind of scrolling past you at its revolutionary period compared to Venus, Uranus and, and Mars and all the other planets, right? It's really cool to watch those scrolling at the different rates that they scroll. Cause earth is just flicking by 365 times as it goes around and Venus is just clicking slowly bit by bit. <laughs> yeah, and Venus's rotation is is uh, it, it's almost static, right? Because that's what I was saying, where the day mm. is longer than the year. 
but it actually rotates in the opposite direction of the rest hmm. of the planets. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, there's an assumption really that it, it got... Is, is it slowing down? I feel like that's it, one of those things I probably learned. Oh, maybe. Is that, is that why it's... Is it working its way to spin the other direction? Yeah. The, well, the, the the idea was that it was spinning in the same direction as everything else as the solar mm -hmm. system formed, but maybe it got hit in the negative, ah, okay. you know, uh, to accelerate <laughs> back in the other direction. It's insane. So think about stopping a, have you ever played with those giant marble balls that sit on top of a fountain? So they kind of float. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Sit on, no. they're, they're, they're usually there's like statues or, or I don't know, it's art, right? But they're, they're huge, smooth, used to be usually a marble or marble like stone, mm. but they're massive. I mean, like life size, bigger than you, giant, extremely heavy, probably a ton of material, literally or more. But they're they're on a fountain, so they're sitting on top of the fountain. So there's this little cushion of water underneath it, so they'll spin. So even though they're just enormous and wildly heavy, it's sort of a it's a hydraulics um, art thing, right? And yeah. uh, anyways, I ask because if you've ever played with one, getting it started is insane. Sure. And so I'm imagining the catastrophic catastrophic event it would take to take something planetary in a similar yeah. system you know spinning freely right frictionless and getting whacked to go the other direction <laughs> yeah well something must have happened like close to the sun because uh if you take our day as the as the standard right um mars is is almost identical um mm -hmm. jupiter saturn uranus neptune are all roughly like between half up to like three quarters of a day for each rotation period Pluto is 6.39 days, so it's a little bit slower. But yeah, Venus is 243 of our days just to rotate once. And no, Mercury is 58.6 days to, to just rotate once. So it's I wonder if it's size and com compilation, too. I wonder mm. what... I'm, I'll bet there are a ton of factors that play into how and why it spins. Isn't... It, and I'm pulling back out of, the, out of the catacombs of my brain. Isn't it Uranus that effectively pulls um like space debris away from earth it, it protects us because it, its gravitational pull actually ends up collecting things like uh asteroids and and comets and that sort of stuff yeah it could go into the belt. i was thinking either that or jupiter but yeah uh, i don't remember which one it is to be honest but i know one of them is doing that so just those gravitational forces again that wild scale right yeah all right, let's switch back to the news before we shut this down. Yeah, that's a good call. Oh, you mentioned Disney Plus, and it made me think uh, another link that's been in here for a while. Apparently, there's speculation that Amazon may be pursuing the addition of uh, TV, uh, live TV, um, or, or local programming, um, pushing it into Amazon Video. And I say speculation because I poked around a little bit. I guess it's based on one of the classic sort of methods for looking into what companies are doing, which is who they're hiring. And they're hiring some some content things. I saw some speculation on the speculation that it was just them trying to improve stuff like recast. But there were some pretty good indicators that they were going to try to sort of compete with the the Google TV of the world, right? And I, I, Apple is obviously yeah. making me push into that as well. But um, I thought that was interesting because yeah. they're they're saying that. Apple scale, or sorry, Amazon scale, and the way that they do it, they could potentially drive the cost of a TV service, not unlike Google TVs, into the range for them that they could actually embed it into the Prime memberships everyone has. 
So Dude, think about awesome. just the number of people overnight that would have access to a Google TV like service that they don't have to pay more than they're already paying. Yeah. Well, That's pretty YouTube cool. TV was, was groundbreaking. Uh, so when YouTube TV came out, everyone, you know, is paying 60 to a hundred bucks for cable. Yeah. I was not just on principle and because mm-hmm. I only really cared about live sports Same. and most of them were on like the, the main things. And I just got an HD TV antenna. Most people don't know that you can actually get TV over the air. That's what I do with the recast, man. It's, you can yeah. record it and it's a one time hundred dollar expense and then you can record live TV. So that rare time, you know, I want to, I did it basically for the occasional sporting event where we wanted to have people come over and host it. I wanted to have access to it and, and I wanted to be able to get it through my app, my uh, Android TV devices, fire TV, basically. So Amazon's, um, but then also having the ability to record content for stuff like the, uh, the Olympics for my kids. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much why I got it. Yeah, no, I I'm all for it, man. Let's get another um, competitor like this uh, yeah, well, because yeah. you know, I, I bought the YouTube TV subscription and they allow you to connect it or, or you can hand out five free accounts to family and friends. So not only did it, I mean, I wasn't using cable, but let's pretend like I was not, not only did it shut off my cable, but it shut off five other homes yeah, of that's cable wild. for 49 bucks a month. It's, it's insane. And that's why you know, we mentioned this a couple of weeks back on the show, but AT&T is just bleeding cable TV subscribers and a big part because the sports content isn't happening right now. So yeah. people are looking <laughs> to say, well, shoot, that's the only reason I had any of this. And then they're learning how to be a cord cutter and they're probably stumbling onto the stuff. And as soon as sports turn back on and broadcasts are happening again, a lot of those people aren't going to come back. And a lot of them are probably going to find out their alternatives. I can only imagine what the advertising is going to look at like a week before sports programming is being broadcast again, because it's all going to be, don't go back to the cable providers, use my service instead kind of stuff. I think. Yeah. That's awesome. It's crazy. It's a, it's a, it, I have been a, a cord cutter, I guess, uh, put that in quotes, for a long time, right? I have not had a cable service probably since I lived with my parents. And so it's very natural for me to consume content in different ways. But it is crazy how many people still consume a cable subscription for the two or three shows that they yeah. are basically I was going to say, it's usually for one show. For. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted history. (laughs) Yeah. History or, you know, home and garden or cooking or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. HGTV, man. (laughs) That's it. What else do we got before we shut this down? Sports. (laughs) Somebody's, somebody's sports is HGTV. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, What else have we seen? Oh, this was cool. I got, I got two little 3D printing news. One, um, I wasn't fascinating, but I, I love where it's going. And it was just kind of a shout out to the different materials. Apparently GE is uh, very far down the path of being able to print concrete structures for um, wind generation. And, and basically because Whoa. they can control the process mechanically so well, they're saying they can build taller uh, turbines. And, and that's, that's oh. cool. You know, the higher because up you it's go, more, more, uh, more exactly. exact, more specific. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. Um, and they can also just do interesting things with the foundation that makes it more strong, I assume. Um, and and so some other stuff there. I thought that was really cool because I, I've been a little bit sort of following not just you know hobby 3D printing or even additive manufacturing for, I guess, small scale um, captive parts and that sort of stuff, but also looking at some of the news that comes out about printing houses and other things like that, um, because it, the application of being able to use 3d printing in that way and create 
captive structures mechanically, you can imagine that there are actually a lot of applications where that's going to be super valuable. Building foundations, for instance, where people can't really be, it'd be really nice if you could get a robot in to build that for you. And 3D printing like Mars or the other side of the moon? Absolutely. No, 100%. Um, so, so <laughs> I love watching that kind of news. And then kind of on the other scale side of the spectrum, apparently there are some researchers that are, are early days, but they're able to print Damascus steel. And I don't know if you are familiar with Damascus steel. This is something I actually ran into to Reddit or, or ran into because of Reddit. It is uh, like an artisan steel, and it has folds that are really pretty, but it's a specialized process to to get this really neat sort of striation effect in the steel. So it makes really, really pretty knives and, and other sort of um, smithed gear. Well, these researchers figured out that they could actually print, and they're printing on such small scales, that they can print the layers of steel and change the heat to get the the mechanical processes necessary to get those layers into the steel. So they're, they're thinking that they can actually do some really cool metalworking processes in the process of additive manufacturing too, which I just thought was awesome. That's crazy. All right. I'm going to close it out with this one. Uh, cause this is, this is some of the wildest, I don't even know what to say about this. Um, but if you're bored this weekend and you want to zone out, <laughs> NASA just published a time-lapse video that shows 10 years of the sun's history in one hour. So it's a YouTube video. What? You just hit play. That it's sounds an hour awesome. Long. Yeah. From the Solar Dynamics Observatory. It's called A Decade of Sun. It's June cool. 2nd, 2010 to June 1st of this year. That's really cool. I'm going to check that out. The photo every day. And then they, they put it in as one hour. Wow. I don't know if I could do that for a whole hour, but I do want to check that out. That sounds really awesome. Every second is a day, it says, through the one hour. <laughs> that's so cool. Sorry, that, that's what it is. Uh, yeah, if any of you watch that, let me know. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Watch the whole thing. Tell me about where the good parts are. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know what you feel like after you've watched every second of one hour. I feel like I'm part of my couch. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, that brings today's Tech Breakfast podcast to a close. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as always, if you've got news we missed, general feedback, or you're to join us for a recording, hit us up, let us know. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And we will talk to you next week. Booyah!